Luke chapter 10, 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning, as we continue on in our series through the Gospel of Luke, um, the kind of ask the question, what does Jesus really do for us? What, what does Jesus really offer us? We, you know, we we're we're 2,000 years out from this gospel writing almost. We're, we're 2,000 years on. He's, Jesus is so far away. He's so cut off from our reality. What, what can he really bring to us? And I, and I bring that up because if you've been following along these past few weeks as we work through uh, this section of Luke, Jesus is saying some very hard things. There's been a costly call to discipleship that we've been reading and hammering on for the past several weeks. If you haven't felt that, you haven't been listening very good. It's a heavy call for discipleship that Jesus is laying out. Starting back in chapter 9, verse 23. I encourage you to keep your Bible out. Look, we're going to have places we're going to flip around this morning. So 9.23, he says this. He starts this call. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the beginning of this difficult call to discipleship. Jesus is not offering or guaranteeing some easy, pleasant life here in this life now. Jesus' call, Jesus' call is a call to the death of the disciple. When you follow Jesus, you leave your life behind. You lose your life. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The disciple of Jesus has lost his life, and the life he now lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God. The call to discipleship is one to take up a cross. A cross is not a a pretty gold piece of jewelry. I mean, it may be that, but the primary imagery of a cross is is a symbol of execution that the disciple takes up their death and they walk towards their death. Jesus, he goes on, he says that the foxes, and here in Luke we've been studying, he says foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We are to understand that, that if the leader of our movement has no home in this world, we should not expect that we ever feel at home in this world either. The implication is that to follow Jesus is to truly be with no home in this world, always out of step with what this world presents us. The follower of Jesus is to leave all that is in this life behind them, 
But not only that, right? Remember, Jesus talks about you leave it all behind and the one who looks back, longs to go back after setting his hand to the plow is not worthy of the kingdom. This is the heavy call to discipleship that we've been in all along here in this last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And so then we move on into chapter 10 and it doesn't really change much. The disciples are sent out, and he says, you're going out, how? As lambs in the midst of wolves. That's not where you want to be. If you're a lamb, stay with the lambs by the shepherd. (laughs) If you're a lamb, don't go march out into the midst of wolves. Why? It gets rough out there, doesn't it? Lambs don't last long. They should not expect to last long in the midst of wolves. And the disciples are sent out to preach this message of peace, and they should not expect a warm welcome to their message. The heavy call, the cost of discipleship. So that's why I'm asking, what's Jesus bringing us? I mean, you know, I, you can walk away with this heavy sense of is it, with all of this negative marketing that Jesus is going on uh, with, uh, we're tempted to walk away with nothing but a burden and an obligation to follow Jesus. Well, he said to do this, so gosh, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. I mean, oh, this is the message of Christianity, to be a disciple, to take up your own death, to have no home here in this world, to not look back longing for the things you leave behind, but to follow Jesus. Is the Christian message just about losing? Is the Christian message about denying? And the answer to that, let me shot, yes. Christianity, stay with me, Christianity is 100% about losing all of the things that do not matter. Christianity is 100% about losing all of the things that do not matter and denying yourself good things as ultimate things because they will never satisfy you in the ultimate end and will earn you nothing but the wrath of God. Christianity is 100% about the losing of things that do not really matter. And it is denying yourself these good things that we put up as God things because in the end they will never satisfy you. This is not a light issue. This is not just some light matter. We're coming off this passage. If you look up earlier from verse 17, there's this woe to the unrepentant cities. Woe is not a word we use a lot. It's a bad word. Woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. This is an awful thing that's going on. He's, he's saying to them this woe that's coming on to these cities for their rejection of the message of peace. Will you, will we have possession of all that matters in this life, rejecting the Savior's call to cling to Him and to leave all that stuff behind? Will we cling to all that matters in this life and reject the call of Jesus to follow Him? Will we deny ourselves the message of true peace that only comes from God and instead work feverishly to secure our own temporal peace? Many say yes. Many say yes. I'll abandon God's call to eternal peace and what I'm going to invest all of my energy is in this temporal peace and gathering all the temporal peace I can for myself right here, right now. This life is what matters. That's what I'm going to work for. And Jesus says, when you reject that message of peace, woe, woe to you. If so, if you become one, gathering all that matters in this life, working for all that matters here, 
You become like these cities that rejected God with one big difference. You become like these cities, Tyre, Sidon, and earlier in verse 12, Sodom. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? You become like those cities with one difference. It's actually worse for you than it was for them. To hear the message of peace, to hear the gospel, and to reject it, you don't become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You become worse. Jesus says it will be better on the day of judgment for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who hear the message of peace from Jesus Christ and reject it. What comes of Sodom and the rejection of God? Ultimate destruction. Read Genesis 19. What comes ultimate to Tyre and Sidon? Their doom is prophesied. You can read places we don't have time this morning. You can go to Isaiah 23 and Jeremiah chapter 25. Verses 15 through 38, these prophecies about the destruction of these cities. And it's brutal. And the destruction comes on and is real and is total and final. And Jesus says to reject his message of peace, you're not Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. You're worse. It's going bad for you. Jonathan Edwards says this in his famous sermon. It's controversial, but I think it's a good sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He says this, Almost every natural man, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. That's us. <laughs> Flattering ourselves. Oh, I, I, was, I wasn't great, but I wasn't that bad. And right now, I'm not doing it perfect, but I'm doing some things okay. And let me tell you, tomorrow I'm going to knock it out of the park. I'm going to kill it. Every natural man flatters himself that this is how he's going to avoid damnation. He, everyone lays out matters in his own mind, how he shall avoid damnation. This is continuing with Jonathan Edwards. And he flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. They hear indeed that there are but few saved and that greater part of men that have died heretofore are gone to hell. But each one imagines that he lays out matters better for his own escape than others have done. He does not intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as to not fail. The sobering consideration of our natural state is much of what's missing in our world today. This is the context of where Jesus brings joy to the disciples, the return of the 72. This is the context out of pronouncing judgment. The harvest is ripe. Judgment is coming. And it's woe upon those who reject the message. And it's within that context that Jesus brings the disciples what true joy is. It's no wonder when this message is lost in our churches today and in our culture today, it's no wonder why the gospel isn't rejoiced in. It's no wonder why the message of good news isn't rejoiced in. We have no concept of the bad news. We have no concept of the bad news. When the bad news is this is so shallow, there's no good, the good news doesn't go any deeper. There's no thought of the reality of our rebellion and our usurping of a sovereign and righteous God. But this is not how Jesus spoke of his work. He did not shy away from the reality of a just wrath and a holy God. So within this context... Of that message, the 72 return. They come back and they're rejoicing, right? Everything that they thought was going to go wrong went well. They come back, 72, and I mean, just from what this appears to say, it says, the 72, or 70, 
But they all returned rejoicing. So though they went out as lambs among wolves, Jesus protected them. They remained safe. This is good news. They come back, they're all returning, and they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our name. What a success this was in their life. What an incredible thing to be a part of. This this beginning of this ministry, the going out, proclaiming the peace of God, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and the king who has come, who has come near. And they go out and proclaim and heal the sick. And yes, even these dark demonic forces, they have authority over them. But Jesus goes farther in his explanation of what is going on. And he says this, it's kind of a mysterious statement. He says this, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I tell you, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And the question, just kind of, just to address that, because this question comes up uh, oftentimes when I'm doing Bible studies with people. What this reality of Satan, where did Satan come from? And this verse is kind of brought up, Satan falling like lightning from heaven. The question we have to ask when we see this here is, when? When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning from heaven? And some would say that this is a prehistoric, from our view anyway, a fall of Satan out of, out of heaven. We know that Satan is a created being. He's angel, Lucifer, angel of light. He's this uh, possibly led worship. But pride comes over him in heaven and he is cast out. And so some say this is this being, this really early in this history of, of time of Satan being cast out of heaven as a created angel and then going on with Revelation, a third of the stars and whatever, he's being swept out of heaven. And they say that this is what uh, Jesus is referencing for a couple of reasons. Saying this because, look, Jesus, Jesus is saying, I was there when Satan got thrown out of heaven. I've got authority. I was there when this guy got thrown out. He, he got kicked out. He tried to take over, and we booted him. He's out. He's, we, he's got no authority compared to ours. That could be what he's saying. Or secondly, he could be saying, I thought this was interesting, guys like J.C. Ryle held this view that the reason why Jesus brings this up is because the disciples are coming back saying, hey, we kick demons out of people. And Jesus, and they're kind of, they're shrugging their shoulder, kind of, you know, brushed, look at us, we, we kicked out demons. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't get too haughty. Satan, because of his pride, was kicked out of heaven. That's interesting. I never read it that way. But this one, I, I've always referenced this verse as some sort of, on the comment on the history of Satan. But the, this, this word saw, this Greek word saw, is a present thing. Jesus is saying, I, I was seen. And there is this idea that as the disciples are out and about doing their ministering, as they are out and about doing their ministering, Jesus is watching and he is seen. He saw in the proclamation of the gospel, he saw Satan fall like lightning. That through the disciples' ministry, through their work, empowered by the Holy Spirit, commissioned by Jesus Christ, he saw Satan fall like lightning. That is an incredible thought. 
As they are out proclaiming this message of the kingdom, Satan is thrown down from his pedestal. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, it's clear that there is a battle with powers and principalities in the heavenly places. But Christ has defeated this enemy, as Colossians 2, 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to shame on the cross. But what an image this would be, and that the telling of the good news about Jesus and hearts respond Repentance and faith comes. It is knocking Satan out of the air like lightning. What an image that is. That's incredible. I mean, this is the, what a, what a high the disciples would be on. This is ministry success like you can't imagine. If we were to walk out into the, off the square here and just, I'm going to stop, we'd stop the cars going by, share the gospel. They hear the good news. They repent. They trust Jesus. Satan's falling like lightning from heaven. What incredible ministry success this would be. Now the disciples are rejoicing, right? I've given you authority over scorpions, over certain serpents, authority over all things. Nothing shall harm you. They're rejoicing. This is incredible news. But Jesus stops them short on that rejoicing, doesn't he? Luke chapter 10, behold, I've given you, verse 19, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, largely uh, imagery, not necessarily literal, but a metaphorical imagery. He says over all the power of the enemy, the, this imagery of trampling on all the, the, the demons and the, the Satan and all of his works and powers and effects, and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 20, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice in that. This, I mean, that's incredible what they're doing, right? This, this ministry success, healing the sick, casting out demons, the kingdom being embraced, incredible success. Nevertheless, Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. That's not the thing to rejoice in. What's the thing to rejoice in? What's the thing to rejoice in? Now, let's stop quickly. What, if, if God, answer this question, if God would just do blank, then I'd rejoice. If God would just do blank, then my joy would be full. Where is your rejoicing? Where is your rejoicing? If God would just do this. I mean, so in a ministry context, you know, because I, I think about these things. Well, boy, if, if the ministry, if, if, if the success of this church would look like this, boy, we'd be a happy church. Or you think personally, Boy, if, if Jesus would just, if God would just do this in my family, then I'd rejoice. Or, or just personally, if God would, would, would deliver me from, from this um, infirmity or this, this sinfulness or whatever, then I'd, then I'd be happy. What is, your, what is your this? What's your blank? Where would you rejoice? If God, or maybe you could go in the past, if God would have just done this, then I'd rejoice. What is, what is your rejoicing in? And where does Jesus tell them to put their rejoicing? Where does Jesus say their rejoicing should be? Not in the successful ministry. It's astonishing. <laughs> not there. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If that falls lightly on you, you're not hearing what Jesus is saying. Don't rejoice in that. Spirits are subject to you. Are you kidding me? How can, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Now, this isn't just some new idea Jesus is bringing up on the spot, like he's making up this new doctrine of things being written in heaven. This has a history in our scripture of this idea of a recording that is going on. So, just to take a little bit of a tour through our Bibles. If you got them, get them back out. I want you to see these if you want to follow along, and I want you to, but do as you will. Exodus chapter 32 There's this recording that is going on, this recording. I want you to see this theme, this biblical theme throughout Scripture. Exodus chapter 32 is on page 86 of your pew Bible. Exodus chapter 32, verse 33. Uh, Let's start in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What in the world is Moses talking about? There's a book that he's saying, if you're not going to forgive them, blot my name out of this book as well. Psalm 69, go on back to, we'll jump all the way to Psalms. Psalm 69, verse 28. Psalm 69, 28 is on page 572 of your pew Bible. Psalm 69, verse 28 Speaking of, it's a, it's a curse upon the sinful people. 27, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. There's a book. There's a, a, a righteous. There's a role that the unrighteous are not in. They're blotted out. They're taken off of. They're not on it. And that the righteous are enrolled upon. Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4, or yeah, Isaiah chapter 4, little Bible workout, your fingers will survive. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, this is on page 676 of your pew Bible. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Everyone who has been recorded. There's a recording going on. Do you see this? I'm trying to build on this. There's, there's, there's this book that is being written. Go on back to Daniel. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 is on page 890 of your Bible. Daniel Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. What? Okay, so Jesus is on to something, right? He's read his Bible. He knows something's going on. There's a book that is written. Hebrews will jump over Luke. There's a Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of this as well. And we'll skip the Hebrews one for time's sake. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. The one who conquers... This is on page 1220 of your pew Bible. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments... And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There's a book. There's a book. 
Revelation 20, verse 12, also Revelation 13, 8, calls it the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There's a book. There is a recording of the righteous in a place where God can read it and keep track of it. Jesus tells these disciples to rejoice not in all this incredible success, but to rejoice their names are in this book. Their names are written in heaven. The reality is that Jesus knows what is coming for them. Great successes and great tragedies. They're going to see Jesus rejoicing on Palm Sunday, celebrated. They're going to see great success, demons cast out, wonderful teachings from Jesus, and they're going to see him hung on a cross. They're going to see Jesus resurrected from the dead and all this ministry success, and they're going to see Stephen stoned. They're going to see their own ministry at Pentecost, 2,000 people saved in one proclamation of the gospel and martyrdom coming for so many of them. They're going to see great things. They're going to see horrendous and terrifying things. And Jesus is grounding their hope in one great reality, not the success. Rejoice in this. Your names are in the book. Your names are written down. Jesus tells them to rejoice in what truly matters. So how does this then hit home? Just a few minutes to reflect. What is it that is written in heaven? Is it just some generic description? You know, everyone who believes in Jesus, your name, you're up there. You're on, you're on you're on, yeah, okay, you're up there. I've done, uh, I've done field trips, and uh, you get on the bus, and they give you 15 kids you've got to watch. And, um, you know, if you're volunteering, you're like, I don't know any of these kids' names. So what do you do? You count them, right? So you get somewhere, and you're like, 15, okay, everybody's here. When you get 14, it's like, I, who's, I, I'm missing one. Who is it? I have no idea. I just know I'm missing one. All I know is a number. I don't know who it is. I don't have names. I just got a, I got a number. We can count, and, and I, I know this general group, but I don't know who they are. I mean, I, I'm just I'm here trying to survive this field trip. You know, and so you, you just kind of have a number. Is that what God has in heaven? We got 50, uh, 50 from this group. I, I, I can't, he can't, how could God be expected to keep track of all of them? I mean, you know, I've got this general number and I'll know if one of them is missing because the number will be off. Is that what's recorded in heaven? No. What's recorded in heaven? Your very name. Your name. You're no mystery to God. He's not up there. I, I, I I think there's about... 120 people, I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not making an accusation against the church, the town, or whatever. And then I think there's this general number, and, and if I'm missing a few, I'll know, but I don't, I don't know. I think it's just kind of a general number. No! Jesus tells them to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. Their names are written in heaven. If you are Christ's, if you have repented of your sin, if you confess Jesus of Lord, you've heard this message of peace, you can achieve nothing by works of your own flesh, but through the grace and mercy of God, by faith in His Son, you can be reconciled to God, forgiven of your sin, reconciled to Him eternally. Your name, Darren Allen Dolacek, written, written, God knows you. This incredible reality that the Gospel is simultaneously universal and global. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who looks to Christ, you can proclaim it to the mountaintops. You trust Christ, 
You repent of your sins. You look to Him as work on the cross. You are saved. Absolutely global. And at the same time, intensely personal. You. I don't have time to say all your names this morning. But you. If Christ is yours, your name. Not bland so-and-so this person. You. Do you hear the incredible thought that this is? Why does my, my name written in heaven? This vast God, so vast that he decorates the sky with stars that are so far away, you can't comprehend how far away they are. The nearest star to us, okay, this is, sorry, this is dorky, but the nearest star to us that we can't even see with our naked eye, it's, it's too dim, but the light from that star traveling at 186,000 miles per second, the light from that star, now the sun's our biggest star, that's our closest star, but even its light takes eight minutes to get to us. Eight minutes from the time light leaves the sun to get to us. That's big. The next nearest star takes 4.24 years traveling at 186,000 miles a second. That's fast, folks. Four years to get to us. God holds all this together. God supports all of this with the word of his mouth, moment by moment, second by second. That vast, incredible God knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. They're recorded. If you are his, they're recorded in heaven. Not only that, Psalm tells us that every day of your life is recorded to heaven. That's Psalm uh, 56, or Psalm 139. Every day, every one of them in his book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Your, every day is recorded there. Every tear, Psalm 56 says, you have count. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? Your name. Your name written in heaven. And that's the second thing. It's your name. And where is it written? It's written. Not on, I could write your name down here. And it lasts, I don't know, 100 years maybe, 200 years. It ain't going to last forever. But when your name is written in heaven, it's written somewhere where moth, rust cannot destroy where thief cannot break in and steal, when your name is written there, there is nothing that can unwrite that name. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 16, right? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. If your name is recorded in heaven, there is no power, no power that can remove it. There are no bookworms in heaven. There are no bookworms. You ever open up, a bu- open up a book and it's got a hole eaten through it? Those don't exist. They, they aren't tearing up God's book in heaven. There's no Amazon sale used, slight, you know, moderate shelfware to this book in heaven. No! Your name recorded in heaven. Names written there cannot be removed. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord, always. Always. When things are great, when things are unbearable. Rejoice. What? Your name written in heaven. What if I've just received crushing news from my doctor? What if my relationships are all falling apart? What if my loved ones are sick and hurting? What if I'm on my own sickbed? What if I'm 
the one who's dying. What then? This. When all the things of life are fading away, remember your name. If you are Christ, when all the things in this world are fading away, remember your name. Written down. Your name. Written, recorded in heaven itself. And all who know Christ, who trust in this message of peace, peace with God through repentance and faith in Christ's work, they can all rest and rejoice knowing this great reality. Through all the highs and through all the lows of life, their names are written in heaven. They are known and they cannot be lost. Do not rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grant to each one of us in this room this morning eyes to see broken hearts over our sinfulness, faith in the work of Christ. God, that we would look to the Son, calling upon His name, and know, and know that there is a rejoicing for us Nothing in this life can take away. And it is the rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. Father, by your Spirit, make it real, tangible, and secure it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.